Hello and welcome to the Ant Hill. I'm Will DeFreitas. In this episode, we're asking, what is next for sex? We'll hear about the latest in sex research and where it might lead to in future. And we'll also find out how the internet has changed the ways that sex is bought and sold. First, though, we're taking a look at a particularly hot topic. That's the development of sex robots. Now, of course, there's nothing new about technology being deployed to serve our human need for love or sex or intimacy. Back in the 1990s, as the internet allowed people to connect privately and anonymously, there was a promise of what was termed virtual sex. Today, of course, we can swipe through thousands of faces on dating apps, all without leaving the sofa. But things are soon going to get a lot more intense. In the near future, algorithms will be able to figure out our deepest desires, and specially customised machines will be built to fulfil our fantasies. So will robots become a normal part of people's sex lives? Michael Parker takes a look at where advances in computing and artificial intelligence might lead us in our search for love. Does Ava actually like you? Or is she just pretending to like you? Self-awareness, manipulation, sexuality. Are you attracted to me? Now, if that isn't true AI, what is? Caleb, there's something I want to show you. The sex robots are coming, and they're leaving us intrigued but confused, as we heard there in a clip from the 2015 film Ex Machina, which stars Alicia Vikander as a seductive artificial intelligence. Sex robots should interest us, given how important love, sex and intimacy are to our lives. It seems natural that we would use technology to meet those needs, as and when it becomes capable of doing so. In fact, that's pretty much what we've always done. In written and painted erotic works, in risque what-the-butler-saw cine films, in sex toys of varying shapes and purposes, and of course through the internet, which has probably done more than anything to bring lonely people together. Pretty much as soon as there was a cyberspace, people were considering how it could be used for cybersex. Drawing inspiration from the writings of Philip K. Dick, Pat Cadigan and William Gibson, the arrival of the World Wide Web in the early 1990s led to excitement about the possibility of creating virtual realities or cyberspaces in which people could meet and communicate outside their real lives. Examining its cultural and artistic impact at the time was Trudy Barber, now a senior lecturer in media at Portsmouth University. Um, 1990, I was a mature student, undergraduate at Central St Martin's College of Art in London, where uh, I was doing a fine art degree. And uh, I've been doing a lot of work uh, looking at the body and technology. And when I started seeing virtual reality, I thought, wow, wouldn't this be absolutely fantastic to look at virtual digital space and see what happens when you become immersed in it? Because it's kind of like being immersed in a painting. It would be like creating uh, an image that you could go into and walk around. So I thought, wouldn't it be fabulous to look at virtual space, digital space, as a place for artistic creativity and why not look at something like sort of sexual interactivity within that virtual space opportunity for any sort of sexual interactivity was limited by the fact that the hardware allowed only an audio visual experience to bring other senses into the virtual environment a sensor equipped device known as a data glove was developed one on the hand with versions for the entire body 
It allows the hand or body to be represented in virtual reality and to send and receive sensory feedback to and from the simulation. Initially, um, you were looking at ordinary sort of virtual spaces which didn't have any particular tactility to it. Um, until you had people like Jaron Lanier who started creating his uh, data gloves and you started getting ideas of, well, maybe I can be in this virtual space and I can start feeling things. Then it gives the whole sexual arena another sort of frisson when you can start playing around with touchiness and feeliness. And then, you know, you can put on a bodysuit and then look at your body in virtual space and maybe have that stimulated. And this is what people were doing in their own homes. They were making up their own bits of kit. And these are the people that I studied in, in the end when I did my PhD. In 1993, Norwegian artist Stahl Stensley developed Cyber SM, a pretty terrifying-looking piece of fetish gear fitted with computer-controlled sensors that allowed two people to remotely stimulate each other's bodies via the internet. To be clear, that's just two years after the World Wide Web was invented and just a few years after commercial internet access opened to the public. People immediately recognised the internet's sexual potential, even if the reality fell short of expectations. Since then, we've moved through online text chat rooms where people can discuss private fantasies anonymously, to massively multiplayer online 3D worlds like Second Life, where users act out alternative lives or sexual fantasies through graphical avatars. And now today, with smartphones in our pockets and ubiquitous internet connections, any hip young thing might spend a few idle hours swiping through faces of potential mates on Tinder. Online dating is now so mainstream that what was once seen as the province of the perverse or the socially inept is now completely unremarkable. And this, in a way, brings us back to the early promise that Trudy recognised. Originally, you know, people thought it was science fiction and that it was just sort of nonsense and... It was something that shouldn't be taken seriously, but people have begun to realise that what I was saying at the time has have now come to pass. So it's become really interesting to see how technology and sexuality and sexual behaviour has gone in tandem. But for some, a virtual or remote sexual partner isn't enough. Enter the sex bot. I spoke to Kate Devlin, a senior lecturer in computing and sex robot researcher at Goldsmiths University of London. Sex robots sounds very modern, Kate, but the idea of machines for love and sex is very old, isn't it? It really is. It goes way back. So the very first mentions of an artificial lover go back to ancient Greece. I think the story that most people are familiar with is Pygmalion, which is actually a Roman story of a Greek myth. And it's about a man, a sculptor, who creates a beautiful woman because he doesn't approve of the women around him. And he falls in love with his statue and the gods bring her to life. And I think that that idea, that trope lasts down the years. And we see it in sci-fi. We see it in films and books. Just this idea that you can create something, an object of your desires. So man creates idealised woman and prefers it to the real thing. So far, so predictable. It's like 1980s B-movie Weird Science, only written by Ovid 2,000 years ago. But the classics also offer other twists on this trope. Interestingly, one of the earliest stories is about the creation of a male artificial lover. And Dr Genevieve Lively at the University of Bristol, she's a classicist, and she was reading through these stories. And there's a story of a woman called Laudamea, and her husband went off to fight in the Trojan Wars, and he was killed in battle, and they hadn't been married very long. 
And so she asked for the gods to return him and she got him back for three hours and it wasn't enough. So she built a replica of him and some stories say it was in wax and some say it was in bronze. And she took this replica to her bed. She took this artificial man to her bed and the the word is that she interacted with him. And we know there was probably something going on there because one of the servants spied her and told her father who wasn't very happy about this and it all ended terribly and the replica the the artificial lover was destroyed and she killed herself in grief Uh, so that very 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 early story has a, a male as the focus of the object of desire but we don't see that yeah we we've switched and now it is predominantly female fembots sexbots gynoids that we hear about It's interesting that a male sex robot of sorts makes an appearance very early on. But the heat the topic generates today is largely due to the absurdly proportioned, even grotesque depiction of women's bodies presented by some sex dolls. It's a concern Kate understands. I've long argued that we should move away from this hypersexualized, pornified female form. It's not really helping anyone. Today's technology provides sex dolls with more convincing silicon skin, animatronic faces even the limited ability to speak and respond. But they're still dolls, whose inert bodies must be physically carried and manipulated by their owners. They're a far cry from the powerful, intelligent and sexually seductive robots of science fiction films such as Ex Machina, Blade Runner, even the Stepford Wives. It seems unlikely that we would switch our affections en masse from humans to such robotic companions any time soon. But that doesn't mean they serve no purpose. Kate explains people who are buying those sex dolls are not buying them primarily with sex in mind they're buying them for companionship there's a whole community out there and that's the interesting thing they have formed a community around the ownership of these dolls so people who would feel lonely enough isolated enough that might be the reason why they buy the sex dolls some of them others buy it because that's what they're into or it's part of their marriage things like that but the people who are lonely buy these dolls and they build up personalities for them they treat them with a lot of respect and they do it out of loneliness and yet they meet other people who also own dolls and they form a community of of the users so I think that's really nice because that shows that we are connected and people are able to be in touch with others through this technology. Robots can offer emotional benefits to an increasingly atomized society such as ours. Already in fact robots have therapeutic uses. One example is Paro a sort of cute robotic seal used to comfort older people with dementia. It seems, with the talk from some quarters of outright bans, we must be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We know that people form attachments with robots. Those attachments aren't the same as our human relationships when we're in love or anything like that. It doesn't mean they couldn't be in the future. And certainly, I think there's potential for that. And that could bring great benefits. We know that loneliness is a problem. And we know that we have an aging population. And so if we could provide some kind of companionship and intimacy for people who need it, want it, or aren't able to get it any other way, then I think that's quite a good thing. But there are caveats. There are problems around the ethics, around security and privacy, things like that. Objectification is a major problem at the moment. So I think we have to be cautious about that as well. Faced with sex robots that fall into the uncanny valley, unnerving us with their real but not quite real enough looks. The way forward may be to go back to basics and develop sex machines that are not humanoid at all. At a goldsmith's sex tech hackathon organised by Kate, 
50 people met for just 24 hours to throw together surprising ideas for such machines. So the the winning team this year built a really cool, it was like a shawl, um, like a blanket, and you wore it and had lots of sensors over it. And the idea was to have that in a either an augmented reality or a virtual reality environment so that you could have touch as part of that augmented reality. You could manufacture a vision or a manifestation or an avatar or they, they visualize rose petals falling from the ceiling and touching your body and you'd be able to feel that as the blanket the sensors moved and and you could feel it happening to you um another one was a hammock kind of um, thing where you, li- you lie in it and you have these inflatable tubes that go around your body and they can tighten and squeeze you. So I think there's some really cool things <laughs> that we can do with the technology we have. <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> it was very cool. It was also very strange because I, I tested it out um, and it was a bit weird <laughs> when you've got these tubes going across your body, but it was really, really interesting. Perhaps the technology that will take root in the future will be based on what works for us as a means to deepen our understanding of our sexual selves or to help us connect with others, both things that can be hard for all sorts of reasons. Ultimately, human relationships are difficult and our relationships with technology more simple, which can be a comfort for some. Here's Trudy Barber again. Young people today seem to have a a communication concept which has gone awry a bit because they don't like looking you in the eye. They prefer to text And I think with that comes ideas of trust. And I think some people would rather trust their technology. And I think that's where it becomes interesting with things like the sex dolls, because people who use the sex dolls trust that sex doll rather than have any other kind of relationship. So it becomes really, really interesting. It opens up a whole can of worms of different things from society to how we look at the physical body, how we look at identity and gender fluidity. The sentient robots of science fiction are a long way off, perhaps even impossible. But technology will continue to creep into our sex lives as it has for decades. It will become so integrated into our everyday lives that we won't even think twice about it. So the the context of having, say, lots of polyamorous uh, relationships connected with your mobile phone, that will be commonplace, I think, um, the way that education will be bringing up children to think in a different context about how they actually have relationships with people and how they have relationships with their technology and through their technology. The sex robots are coming then, but they're not what you think they are. That was Michael Parker, who would like it to be known that he is not in love with a robot. So we know that sex is likely to change quite a bit in the future. And academic researchers will no doubt follow every single development, as they have done ever since the days when the very first sexologists, as they're known, still thought that homosexuality or a fetish marked you down as some sort of deviant. So to find out a bit more about how this field of sexology has developed and what's happening in it right now, Josephine Lethbridge, our interdisciplinary editor, has spoken to three sex researchers. What comes to mind when you think of the study of sex? Perhaps the infamous experiments carried out by American sexologist Masters and Johnson, who directly observed hundreds of men and women in the act in the late 60s. 
Or maybe you think first of Freud, who developed his famous theory of sexuality in the early 20th century. Sex hasn't always been the object of such scrutiny, so when did researchers start to investigate it? Most histories of sexology, defined by the Oxford English Dictionary as the study of human sexual life or relationships, point to the late 19th century as its starting point. This is when a series of doctors and psychologists began to publish texts that dealt with a variety of sexual topics from homosexuality to masturbation. But not all researchers agree that the field flowered from late Victorian medicine. I spoke to Jana Funke, Senior Lecturer in Medical Humanities, and Kate Fisher, Professor in History, both at the University of Exeter. Together, they are conducting a research project they call Rethinking Sexology. Here's Jana to explain. What sexology actually is seems very straightforward. It seems like an easy question to answer, but it's really not. Kate says that sexology is often understood as a product of a new scientific interest in objectivity. Most histories of sexology concentrate on what is happening towards the second half and particularly the very later decades of the 19th century, moving into the 20th century. And those models would generally also see sexology as developing slightly differently from the sort of 1940s, 50s, 60s onwards, looking at with with people like Kinsey or Masters and Johnson. So that might be Mm -hmm. the kind of arc of development. And that history usually sees a very uh, significant break around the middle to the end of the 19th century, where ways of thinking about sex are radically transformed by these new scientific forms. You could look at dates like 1886, when uh, Austrian sexologist Richard von Kraft-Ebbing first publishes Psychopathia Sexualis. And then a few years later, you get Sexual Inversion, uh, written by British sexologist Havelock Ellis and John Ellington Simmons. And around that time, people start calling themselves sexologists or sex researchers or sexual scientists. And you get journals and organizations looking at sexual science. If you read the histories of sexology, they tend to concentrate on a relatively small number of key pioneering figures. And most of these figures have some claim to connection with the medical world. So they are either trained as doctors or they are practicing psychiatrists or they have some clear medical credentials. So, of course, there was something going on in the medical world. But Jana and Kate argue that this 19th century moment was far from the beginning of such intellectual inquiry. So something is happening here, but Kate and I are also really interested in challenging this idea that sexology actually emerges or is invented in the second half of the 19th century, because there are so many intellectual traditions that shape thinking around sex in that historical moment. And if you actually trace them back, you might very well find yourself in the earlier parts of the 19th century, looking at forensic debates about sex then. You might go back even further to the 18th century when antiquarian thinkers were trying to think about sex scientifically looking at history. So again, that question of when sexology comes into existence is a really, really problematic one to answer. But what's really exciting about this earlier moment in sexology is that actually sexologists were themselves trying to say, if you want to understand sex and all of its complexity and all of its variation across the world, across history, 
you cannot just rely on clinical medical evidence. You need to turn to literature, history, anthropology to really understand sexuality in its complexity. So, sexual science was never purely medical. It arose from a fascination with historical and cultural variation and was driven by social and political debates. So what kind of sources were they coming across? I asked for an example. Here's Jana. So Magnus Hirschfeld in the 1910s puts together a series of books called um, Sexual Pathology, Sexual Pathology, which is a book aimed at medical students who need to understand all the different kinds of sexualities that we find in the world. And in that book, Hirschfeld publishes a drawing produced by one of his patients. And this patient has a quite peculiar, perhaps, in the sense of rare um, sexual interest in that he's interested and he's aroused in seeing people who are cold. He's a cold fetishist, as Hirschfeld calls him. So he has produced this drawing of a woman who is sitting on a frozen lake shivering. And what I find so wonderful about this example are two things, really. The first is that it just shows us this diversity of sexualities, you know, someone being aroused by seeing someone who's shivering, who's cold. And the second reason why I find this example wonderful is that it shows you how important patients' input was in shaping sexual science. You know, this is a drawing produced by a patient that Hirschfeld publishes here to show us the really individual ways in which sexuality is expressed. Cold fetishist may not have remained past our vocabulary today, like other words coined in the period, such as homosexual, sadist or masochist. But what are the other legacies of historical sexology? I think if there's anything that we can take away from that earlier moment that we are studying and with regard to the history of sexology, I think it's that sex research is a struggle and sex research needs to constantly evolve and try to broaden its remit and scope. It needs to be bold. It needs to be cross-disciplinary. It needs to try and find new methodologies and open up new conversations to try and do justice to the complexity of sexuality in all of its variation. To find out whether this is the case, I spoke to someone working in the field today. Uh, my name is Cynthia Graham. I'm a professor of sexual and reproductive health in uh, psychology at the University of Southampton and I'm the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Sex Research. The Journal of Sex Research, established over 50 years ago, is the oldest sexuality research journal around. It's very interdisciplinary, featuring psychologists, anthropologists, sociologists and some work from researchers in the humanities. I asked Cynthia, who has been editor for almost 10 years, how research into sex has changed in that time. I would say one of the trends even in that decade has been that there, there is more research looking at what used to be seen as sort of stigmatized and, and really clinically uh, deviant groups, really, uh, seen as, as, as dysfunctional in some way. So we're getting more research, for example, on BDSM, on, on other sexual you know, preferences. We're getting more research on sexuality amongst transgendered people, but, but also people who identify as asexual still debated how that's defined. She mentioned that changes in methodology are also influencing the kinds of research being done, particularly because much better sampling techniques are being used. Uh, one good example is, is we had a paper not that long ago published on a really large community sample reporting on people's interest in having sex with children and very taboo topic 
traditionally. These were not people who engaged in paedophilia, but they reported interest. The sample was large. The study was very carefully done. That's the kind of research that I don't think we would have seen even 10, 15 years ago. I mean, are there other areas where research is growing in those kind of taboo areas? I mean, some of the research that's very, I would say, growing only in the last few years and in, in, in an area that's very controversial is the whole topic about pornography, how it's used, who uses it, what effects it has. So we're, we're seeing a really growing number of research from different disciplines, including, you know, sociologists and um, different, you know, de- developmental psychologists, counselling psychologists. And that research is, is getting better in quality as well. Mm-hmm. And it's also not all negative. It's not it's not slanted towards only looking at negative things. The same, she said, is true of research into casual sex, which is also growing. Hooking up, booty calls and all the their, their, their whole slew of names that research is is getting better in quality again and is not focused so much on negative consequences only but looking at possible positive consequences similar other areas of things like there's a lot of research on sexting right now but it's starting to be not just looking at it like a terrible problem for young people but actually there can be some benefits for couples and what what topics do you think are still too too taboo one, to- one topic which just it surprises me continues to still be fairly under-researched and funding agencies are, are, are get a bit worried about it is masturbation. There's still, still surprisingly little that we understand. We know about gender differences are still quite marked with men masturbating a lot more. But, you know, trying to understand how much that's reporting bias and how much it is that, that women actually do masturbate less. And, and I think it's an important area because it is a kind of, form of safer sex really <laughs> i asked her whether some researchers still face stigma because of the areas they work in i think there's definitely still a taboo about working as a sex researcher and in fact it's an interesting question because just yesterday in my job in in, in my department of psychology i had a graduate student someone who's just about to start a phd come and ask me whether it was maybe a bad idea because whenever she talked about the particular area she worked in, people either laughed or thought she she was she was strange and a bit you know a little bit um, sort of pervy really to to be studying that topic and it was quite a sensitive topic. Um, but I think it can be really difficult to get funding. Not I wouldn't say more for women's sexual sexuality topics than men, but it is a difficult area to get funded. And many researchers deal with that I think and and, and feel they need to by linking their research to the possibility of some kind of improvement in either maintaining relationships or family or to reducing problems um, such as sexually transmitted infections. Mm. or And of course, those are important things to do, but it's harder to do research, basic research on sexuality without linking it to some of those things because people need to feel that it's, it's, it has some kind of societal benefit. So even today, research into sex is conditioned by traditional values. Given that, I asked Cynthia whether she envisages a future in which research moves away from a focus on risk and towards a focus on pleasure. I would really like to see the field looking more at things like pleasure. That's a very under-researched topic, which I didn't mention, but sexual pleasure. What I would hope, and I think I could see happening, is that the field is going to move away from looking at a lot of the sort of variability in sexual behaviour and preferences and identities as well, looking at that without that sort of pathological lens. So not looking at 
not looking at low sexual desire in women, for example, as being something that's necessarily a dysfunction. Could be, you know, certainly it, it, most often it's not. Also not looking at problems such as sexual function problems as necessarily being something that has a physiological basis. So traditionally, you know, the idea was low sexual desire probably meant low testosterone, and there were a lot of studies in that area. But there's really growing recognition of all of the other often relationship factors, contextual factors, individual, you know, history factors, things like sexual abuse history or sexual assault, for example. I think that definitely sex research is moving in that direction. In a way, then, sexology has kept true to its roots. Sex has always been something that can only be understood by looking at it from multiple perspectives, scientific, psychological, cultural. But the questions asked of sex have advanced significantly, moving from the initial, sometimes racially or pathologically motivated inquiries towards today's interest in issues such as pornography, sexting and one-night stands. But it looks as though the field still has some way to go if it is to break beyond the age-old emphasis on risk, public health and traditional values. Who knows when researchers will really get to grips with what gets us going. Josephine Lethbridge there with an overview of the latest in sex research. Next up, we're going to hear from two academics who focus on sex work, an industry that, thanks to the internet, has changed enormously in the past decade. Over now to Annabel Bly, the conversation's business editor and producer of this podcast. When you think of the gig economy, it's probably Uber or Delivery or TaskRabbit that spring to mind. But the rise of internet platforms has also revolutionised the sex industry, to the extent that online sex work now dwarfs the traditional street trade. Things like webcamming, instant messaging and the arranging of escort services are just some of the ways that sex work has moved online. And these new services offer a flexible source of income to people who might not otherwise consider doing this kind of work. Before we go any further, it's probably important to note some of the laws around sex work. In Britain, it's legal to sell sexual services for money, but lots of related activities are illegal. This includes soliciting for business in the street or a public place, and also brothel keeping, which is where there is more than one person selling sex in one place. But the law has largely not kept a pace with the new world of online sex work, which is ever-evolving. To find out more, I spoke to Tila Sanders. She's a professor at the University of Leicester, who co-led a research project called Beyond the Gaze. It's the largest study to date of the working practices of internet-based sex work in the UK, from the many services that stay online to those that use online platforms to arrange sexual services in real life. One of the things that we found in the study is that people move in, there's a lot of fluidity in sex work. So you probably have a mainstream job and then you may be doing sex work uh, for periods, sometimes for more in detail periods than other times. And you may be working in lots of different types of sex markets online. So you may be doing the webcam in or you may be an independent escort or you may be just doing some other type. Adult modelling, for example, we had people working in up to nine different markets but in terms of putting on a number, I think um, the uh, the main platforms out there have something like 25,000 profiles. And we would say um, at least half of that is probably the estimate of the industry. 
The majority of people involved in the industry seem to be women. Nearly three quarters of the 641 sex workers that Teela's team surveyed. Otherwise, it was very diverse. We had people from 18 all the way up to the 60s who applied to our survey. Uh, diversity in terms of education. Um, over a quarter of people had a degree, which is not particularly means that they're more educated because it's very similar to the general population. Uh, but there's a lot of people having lots of different types of jobs and also working in mainstream jobs at the same time of doing sex work. For most, the internet played an extremely important role in their work. They worked independently and said if it wasn't for the internet, they wouldn't be doing sex work. Helen Rand at the University of Essex is doing her PhD on the industry of indirect sex services. Traditionally, and what people That's will Helen. remember is telephone calls, chat lines, and they still exist offline, so you can still just pick up your phone and dial a premium rate number uh, or a prepaid number and um, get through and speak to somebody and have an erotic phone call. But with the internet, what's developed from that is that people also do webcam, which is where person does a kind of strip show. Generally, it's, it involves nudity and some kind of explicit content. Not always, I don't want to say it's always the case, but generally it does. And the provider offers this services and the customer pays per minute for this show. And also there's instant messaging, so the same as what perhaps you would use on Facebook, where people pay again per minute to have that interaction with a provider. And also text services on your mobile phone. People she has interviewed talk of the ease and autonomy they have with this kind of work. So I think the motivation is it's something you can just log on. You set up a profile in much the way you would set up a profile on Facebook. You add one or two photos, you add a few personal details, and then very quickly you can start making money from that. And I think that's the motivation, that's the attraction of it. As well as the convenience of it, the internet has also played an important role in making things safer for sex workers. Here's Teela Sanders again. It also increased the capacity for people to monitor the, the inquiries that they got and screen their clients. This was a really important finding in terms of how the internet has possibly made it safer to work in the sex industry if you use all the tools that the internet provides. Online forums and networks enable people to share best practice, but also information to protect themselves from potential abusers. Teela says one of the most interesting findings in her study related to crime and safety. So we do have a figure of over 80%, nearly 81% had experienced at least one crime in the past five years relating to their work and 62% in the last 12 months. So in that regard, if you're thinking about other people's jobs, other types of jobs, it's very high. However, there was very relatively low levels of violent and serious crime. So most people had not had any physical assaults or sexual assaults or threats of violence, which is very different from what lots of other types of research, particularly research focusing on the street, has, uh, has revealed. What's a bigger issue now is the rise of doxing. This is when information about you is published online without your consent. Helen Rand says it's something that a lot of the webcam service providers she's interviewed are vulnerable to. For this kind of work, there is quite a lot of images involved. And obviously with webcam in, it's filmed. People can, if they wanted to, take photos of the screen. And then they've got that, that information about you. Now, if you're trying to keep that secret, that could be quite compromising for you. And that was a lot of people's biggest fear, being outed. Teela Sanders says it came across in the 62 interviews she did in her study. 
And some people really told us that the um, the trauma really of outing, often disgruntled clients or neighbours or aggrieved friends who'd find out and would uh, very much out people even through the media for their children's schools, their family and friends, and obviously can cause real havoc and devastation in people's lives if they're outed without wanting to be. This can also make the job incredibly isolating for sex workers, the need to constantly hide what they do. But despite this stigma and isolation, the internet has made sex work appealing to a large number of people. Money and flexibility seem to be two of the biggest factors. So on average, people work 10 hours a week in the sex industry, which is relatively low. And the average earnings are around £20,000. So often people were doing it, as I said, as well as other types of work, or they were doing it for specific reasons and not necessarily working full time, as you would imagine. Uh, so the fluidity is really there. It's the kind of work that you can come into, come out of. And webcamming is certainly one of those very fluid markets, particularly appeasing to younger people and students, for example, where you can be online, you can decide to work one day or uh, or not the next and essentially uh, dip in, dip out. If you have a profile, you can say when you're working and when you're not. In terms of the specific reasons for doing this work, some of Helen's interviewees did it for fun and they managed their hours accordingly. For others, it was a way to supplement their incomes or make money during periods of unemployment or sickness. So one person had had a long time off because she'd broken her wrist and she was a hairdresser. So she wasn't able to do her normal profession um, and then was at home. What can I do to make money? I need to make money. I need to find a way to pay my mortgage. How do I do this? And I, I guess that flexibility is the, the world we live in right now. So people are thinking, how can I do it? I need to be flexible. I'm a hard worker. How do I find ways to make this income? And this is certainly one avenue that people are finding. The Beyond the Gay study also found that levels of job satisfaction across the industry were very high. And if you put the hours in, there was decent money to be made, with 10% of the people they surveyed earning £50,000 or more annually. Having said that, Teela cautions that there are lots of unpaid hours that go unaccounted for. The idea that in the sex industry you make lots and lots of money is clearly a myth. There are not that many overheads, but in the time, if you think about the time that people have to put in, if you like, all the unpaid hours of preparing yourself, communicating with clients, arranging, lots of arranging and lots of organisational features, as well as keeping up your profiles, then essentially the income is not as what people would expect. In many ways, online sex work is your archetypal gig economy setup. This came across in Helen's interviews. One of the key things that came out of my research was that they're in control over the hours they work and so therefore in control of how much they can make. They're also in control of the services they offer. They're independent, they're very entrepreneurial. So they may then offer other services. They may start off offering just telephone services but then realise they can make money selling goods as well on this website. So very responsive to the market and thinking what things can they do to make that extra bit of income. Now, of course, where online sex workers differ to other sections of the gig economy is with the stigma they face and the legal challenges involved. If the law becomes more lenient or more strict towards sex work, this will have a massive impact on how the industry evolves. And regardless of any legal changes, the industry will no doubt develop in unexpected ways as new technology emerges. That was Annabelle Blythe, one of the producers of this show. 
Now, before we go, we wanted to spread the word about a couple of other podcasts that we're fans of here at the Ant Hill. First, check out the Oxford Sparks Big Questions podcast from the University of Oxford. The big question in their latest episode is, does love have a smell? Animal behavioural specialist Dr Tristan Wyatt joins the show's host Emily Elias to debunk myths about pheromones and explain why the dating schemes selling human pheromones just stink. And if investigative journalism is your thing, check out The Tip-Off, a show that delves into the stories behind investigative journalism in the UK. Given the news that the last two members of the ISIS cell nicknamed The Beatles were captured in Syria in early February, it's worth going back to listen to episode four of The Tip-Off. Journalist Jane Bradley explains to the host Maeve McLenahan how she found out the identity of Alexander Cote, one of the men who has just been arrested. And last but not least, do check out In Depth Out Loud. That's the conversation's own long-read podcast. In our latest episode, we tell a startling tale by Danny Dawling and Stuart Keitel Baston of how life expectancy in Britain has fallen so much that a million years of life could disappear by 2058. It really is a fantastic piece. I recommend you check it out. That's In Depth Out Loud. That's it for this episode of The Ant Hill. A big thanks, as ever, to the journalism department at City University for letting us use their studios. This episode of The Ant Hill was produced by Gemma Ware and Annabelle Bly. And if you enjoyed the show, please share the love with your friends and maybe even give us a review online. Thanks for listening in. Goodbye. <laughs>